morning. Welcome everyone again. It's good to see each and every one of you that is here. And if we believe God, all of you are here for a reason. And there are no coincidences with God. And God wants you to hear something today. Let's open up our hearts and mind to hear from the word of God. As sharp or as whatever it may be, it may cut into the depths of our heart. But if it is the word of God, we need to take it as of, as from the Lord. Not some person's opinion, but from the word of God. And I trust and pray that I bring the word of God today, not from my own ambitions, my own opinions, my own preferences. I bring you the word this morning. So again, Father, we pray that you would open up that word today. We pray, Father, that you would soften up our hearts. We pray, Father, that we may have ears to hear this morning what you have to say to us. Lord, bless our day, bless our time here together. Father, may you lead and encourage us. Father, be with those also that, that have lost loved ones. Catherine's family that, that have lost their, uh, their brother and uncle, be with them. And fathers that have lost their father, families that have lost their mother. Father, we pray that you would be with them, that thy strength would be there, that you would uphold and encourage and give hope. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, my subject today is the way to marvelous fate. The way to marvelous fate. It's called the way because it is not a finished journey for all of us. We are all part of a journey. Now, Jesus has given us everything right now. But it does not mean that our experience, the way whatever we've received, we have not received everything, even though God has given everything. But it's through our own rebellion, sometimes our own stubbornness, that we do not see that way. And sometimes we are of the people that just go around and around and around, continue to fight the same battles because we are not willing to yield to God. So I'm going to bring a few points that help us on our way to marvelous faith. Faith is total dependence upon God. Helplessness before God. Throwing ourselves to God completely and knowing that he will not let me down. That is faith. It's throwing ourselves as the child to his father when he jumps from a bale and we catch him. Total dependence. We trust he will do it. He will do this work that we're looking up to him to do in our lives. Faith is confidence and dependence. In our case, the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two things, two places in the gospel where Jesus used to, the emotion of marveled. And Jesus marveled. There are two places where he used that word. Interestingly, both were used for totally different reasons. And we're, we're, we're going to be looking at these two today. The first one, um, no, that is just an example of the word marvel. In Acts 2, 6, 
Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitudes came together and were confounded because that every man heard him speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? This is the same marvel that, uh, that I'm going to be speaking about. In Greek, the word marvel means like astonished, totally taken aback. In some way, we would be astonished if some Chinese visitors came in today and spoke our native Hutterish language, and we would un they would understand us completely, and we could converse with them. We would all be astonished. Where does this come from? This is a miracle. The two places where Jesus astonished, where Jesus was astonished, comes up in these two scriptures. And I will use astonished and marveled um, simultaneously as meaning the same thing in the Greek definition. In Mark, verse, Mark chapter 6, verse 1, And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence had this man these things? And what wisdom is this which has given unto him? And even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and of Judah, and Simon? We know these people. We know them by name. And are not this his sisters here as well? And they were offended at him because they knew the family so well. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could not do any mighty works there, save that he laid his hands on upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of what? Their unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief. And he went round from the villages teaching. Now, this is not what we would expect. Jesus marveling at somebody's unbelief. There is a universal truth similar to all, in all parts of the world throughout all ages that a prophet is not without honor except among his own relatives and people. It's the same today. It seems your own people seem to know you so well they don't appreciate you. It's hard for, for your own people to take something from you or respect you for who you are in the Lord. But a stranger that they don't know comes along and he says a word that they have never heard or a word that tickles their ears. He is then all of a sudden revered and praised to second heaven. This is a phenomenon that all sheeples seem to have. And I'm talking about everyone, including myself. It's just, it's just the way it is. It's unfortunate at times. But that's just the way people are. We need to take and embrace truth from whoever it is that speaks into our lives. If it's our own fleshly brother. We need to pursue after truth, even if it comes from our own people. Because if it comes from our own people, especially if it comes from our own people, excuse me, especially. Why? Because 
Not only because you know them the best, but because they know you the best. And they can speak the hardest into your life because they know you and vice versa. Jesus was astonished at their lack of faith. Now let's go to the second part where he's astonished. And that is for completely different reasons. And I want, to open, I want you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 verse 5. It is going to be where we're going to stay a lot today. Matthew chapter 8 verse 5. We're going to read from 5 through 13. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. And saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, please don't. You don't have to. I am not worthy that he should come to my house. I am not worthy that you should have come under my roof. In verse 8, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. Verse 9, for I am a man under authority. I am a man under authority too. Having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and another come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. Verse 10, and when Jesus heard it, he marveled. He was astonished. He marveled at this man. He said unto them that followed, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Truly, truly, I say unto you, I have not found such great faith in Israel. Among the Jews, among my people, I have not found such great faith. Not in Israel. Verse 11, and I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, go thy way. And as thou hast believed, so be it unto you. And the servant was healed in the selfsame hour. It was by his own feet. The same word marvel was used in both instances. But oh wow, the difference between the two. On one, Jesus marveled at the people that had lived with him for 30 years. They knew the scriptures. They went to the same synagogues frequently, but they had no feet. The other shows a man that had never been a religious person, but had been in the world all his life, served heathen gods, been in the military, all his life, probably killed a lot of people in his life. A military captain over $100 soldiers. This selfsame one had faith that made Jesus marvel. So much faith, in fact, that he could turn around and proclaim to all, to all them among Judea, the religious trained ones in scripture, the Jews, none came close to the simple faith that this military captain possessed. This truth should really serve as a reminder to humble us as we consider our own religious upbringing. From the, from the day we were one, 
We have been taught these scriptures. We have been taught the Bible. But are we among those, like the Jews, that have little faith? Jesus is astonished at unbelief, at the unbelief in his people today. After the Lord has done and revealed, in, revealed to us the scripture we hold in our hands, the manifold examples of faith being lifted out in scripture and post-scripture writing, healing, healings, testimonies, and revelations, past and present, especially in our own lives, all these years, when we come into complicated situations, we come into a panic, what will happen? Lord, who will take care of me? Jesus is astonished at our unbelief. Oh, Lord, help us help our unbelief. Personally speaking, I'm sure I've had times of wavering faith, as I'm sure all of us have. Jesus has marveled at my unbelief. But let's not dwell on that this morning. Let's not dwell at our times of unbelief. Jesus will not either. Let us repent of our unbelief and press on in the Lord and pursue the faith that will marvel him. There are two things that astonish Jesus, unbelief and faith. Equally, Jesus is astonished at a person that has great faith. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible we know, how much schooling we have received, how much we say we love God. We will only please God by our faith. In Hebrews 11, verse 6, it reinforces this truth. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Unbelief ties the hands of our almighty God. And he will not work if we don't have faith. He wants to, but he will not show himself strong to those who don't put their trust in him. Now let's dig in a little bit deeper into the life of this centurion. Let's see what, how this faith helped him. What is the reason this seemingly heathen man, and I don't want to call him heathen, because it wasn't. It wasn't a heathen man any longer. He believed God. There was something very special that this man had. This captain had so much faith, and we at times possess so little, so that we may examine our own lives and encourage and exhort us to have more faith. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. First of all, the centurion possessed true humility. He felt he was not worthy that Jesus should come to, our, to his house. We begin to see his cloak of humility about him. He felt he wasn't worthy of the Lord's presence in his earthly abode. Secondly, we see his humility in the way he cared for his servant. Um, that servant was probably a slave or to the same equal level to it. <laughs> A servant and a slave in these days that was very well accepted, especially for a centurion. He was a ruler of 100 soldiers. That's what centurion means, 100. He 
He cared so much for his servant that he would go and seek out a Jewish man that he did not know. He had heard so much about him. He believed in him. He went to seek out a Jewish man. That he had heard about so much that he could heal sick people. He was a humble man. He had low esteem for himself, even though he was a centurion of the biggest and most powerful army in the world. Number three, this man had reverence. The centurion had reverence for Jesus that is not seen even today among Christendom. He beseeched Jesus to heal his servant. He believed that Jesus had no need for himself to step into his house. He came with the attitude, I don't deserve anything from you. Sometimes we might be tempted to say, Lord, I've served you all these years, and now you owe me a favor. How many of us have ever come to God in that way? Lord, I've served you all these years. Now I need a favor to ask from you. Is that right when we do that? I need this favor for my family. You start feeling that you are worthy of praise and payback. No, the Lord doesn't owe us anything. This is not fate. We are not worthy. The Lord is worthy and only being clothed with dependence and trust in him will we ever be worthy. There is no shred of worthiness in our DNA. We come in the name of Jesus. We come through his authority. We pray for his sake, not mine, not ours. It is a very important truth to cement into our minds that we are not worthy. It's only through Jesus Christ. The fourth thing that the centurion possessed was worship. The centurion knew what it meant to worship Jesus. Worship is the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration. We see all three of these attributes expressed in his dialogue. Jesus, I am not worthy that you should do this for me. Here's a verse in Luke 17, 7 to 10 that shows us what attitude we ought to always have serving the Lord with the church. And this is a modern translation. Verse, uh, seven, chapter 17, verse 7. Suppose one of you has a servant who has been plowing the ground or caring for the sheep. When that servant comes in from working in the field, would you say, come in, sit down to eat? No, you would say to him, hey, prepare something for me to eat. Then get yourself ready and serve me. After I finished eating and drinking, you can eat. The servant does not get any special thanks for doing what his master commanded. It is the same with you. It is the same with us. When you have done everything you are told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done the work that we should do. This is what the Bible says. Reverence is the first thing in our Christian lives that produces faith. Reverence is the first thing in our Christian life that produces faith. If we have lost the reverence for God, we have lost everything. We have then lost our respect for God, our fear of God. We don't think this is bad or this grieves God because we don't fear God if we don't reverence him. 
we then have no power over sin because we have lost a reference for God. Can we lie prostrate before God in reverence, crying holy, 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 holy to God and keep on sinning? No, that's an oxymoron. It does not. These two do not go together. We do not say holy, holy, holy before God on our face, on the ground, and keep on sinning. These two do not go together. Lying prostrate before God is an antidote to sin. We would do well to meditate before God. What characteristics befits the person that reference that re, that reveres God? Reverence to God is key to overcoming our besetting sins. Zach Poonan said it like this, and I quote, You wonder why you cannot get rid of these sins. You wonder why you cannot get rid of these sins. It's because you think you deserve something. Come to the place where you recognize that you deserve nothing. If I ask God to show me what I deserve, it's hell. Don't ever ask God to give you what you deserve. It's dangerous. You deserve only hell. Say rather, Lord, give me what I don't deserve. I'm not worthy. It's the worshipers that have the maximum faith. End quote. This truth taught me something in this study. A lot of times we are stuck in some besetting sense because we don't have any reference to God. We don't believe who God is. That he is almighty. That he watches the very heart trouble of our heart and he can stop it at any time. He can arrange vehicles to kill us at any moment. Now will he do that? No, he loves us. But if we go our own way, we are not promised the protection of God on our lives. We have cast, we have turned our backs from him. And we are now... His guardian angels are not watching over us. If we think we're going to rebel against God and have his protection, I'm sorry, it's not promised. Let us not tempt God. Next, the centurion did not feel he was superior to his slave or servant. This person was extremely important to him in a society that treated them like trash. He had many other servants, and you can be sure that they were all very important to him. He had a high regard for people, especially those under him. With therefore, having the same attitude, the Lord has been good to me. We should therefore be good to others around us. Verse 9. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this. And he doeth it. In verse 8, the centurion said, I am not worthy. In verse 9, he said, I am a man under authority. This is the second thing that produces faith in us. To be under authority is the second biggest thing that is missing in today's Christendom. A lot of church people automatically think, oh, this man is after power or he's running after legalism. 
The centurion and modern-day military would disagree because every man, every person is under authority. And because he is under authority, he has authority. And because he is under authority, he has authority. From the commander-in-chief, who is under the people, to the private, all are under authority to the people above them. The Holy Scriptures also agrees with that and speaks clearly about the chain of authority that is as clear as that of the military. And being in rebellion to it will have disastrous outcomes. And I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. We will not, it is the, uh, the chapter or the teaching of the head covering. We will not go into this teaching today, but I will touch on it. Because it explains a very clear level of command of authority. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. And I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesied with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head, for that is even all, all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman have the power on her head because of the angels. God wants us to understand that the heavenlies follow a chain of command. If that chain of command is not followed, we don't have proper faith, nor will our prayers be answered. First is God. Then is Christ. Then is man. Then is woman. And then are the children. It follows that chain. They're not set up like God, Christ, man, woman. No, it's from top down. That's very important to understand this. Jesus understood the chain of command extremely well when he was here on earth, and we see evidence of that in Scripture. So did the centurion, because he was under authority himself. He understood it, and so does the devil, because he is under authority as well. He cannot do a single thing that the Lord doesn't allow him to do. He is under authority. He makes us think that he has everything under control, but he doesn't. He cannot lift one hair of our head without God's permission, if we belong to him. Now, if we belong to God, anything can happen. Or any, If we belong to the devil, anything can happen to us. But if we belong to God, we are his. We can rest assured of that truth. And just because we're his doesn't mean that it will not be killed or some unfortunate accident will happen to us. We will rest assured that he allowed it to happen. He allowed it. And there's a big difference for our own good. Even though we might not see it at the time. 
Every woman who refuses to recognize and believe that God in his great wisdom made her a woman is rebelling against authority. Many say, I want to be equal with man. I want to be equal with my husband. It's like the captain saying to his general, who made you above me? I want to be equal with you. There is soon utter chaos within that mentality. And we can see with our own eyes where this chain of authority isn't practiced in truth. For this reason, our sisters put a veil of covering on their head because of respect for this chain of authority. This veil is clearly saying, not only in the physical world, but also to the spiritual world, that I respect this authority over my head. This authority is her husband. All the while, she observes that her husband has Christ over his head. And that has to be. The husband has to have Christ over his head. That means he follows after Christ. He is a man befitting of being a Christian. All the while, she observes that her husband has Christ over his head and respects Christ. Brothers, we cannot emphasize the veil over our wife's head and disregard Christ over our own head. We come first. Ours is the primary responsibility. Are we surprised that the subject of the head covering is so controversial in today's Christendom? Are we surprised? No, we're not. Because we see all around us the woman wanting to be the head. And the head covering is clear and transparent stumbling block to this movement. A godly submissive woman will have no problem with a head covering and the chain of authority in the home. The biggest enemy to the woman wearing a veil head covering is the devil. Because he knows that if you come under authority, you will have authority over him. He doesn't want you to have authority over him. If we want to have authority over Satan and sin, we need to be under authority of Christ. And I say to this man, go and he goeth, and another, come and he cometh, and to my servant, do this and he doeth it. For this reason, the centurion knew that Christ could command the sickness to leave. He understood the chain of command. He was a man also under authority. Authority is a tremendous thing. You don't have to be strong to have authority. <laughs> authority is stronger than power. A policeman on a bicycle is small and fragile compared to a big 600 horsepower 18 wheel semi. But if that policeman waves for the trucker to stop, he will stop. Otherwise, there's consequences and grave ones. The truck has the power, but the policeman has the authority. Similarly, when we carry the authority of God, we can overcome our sins. We can command the demons to go. We can heal in Jesus' name. We can pray and encourage in Jesus' name. We carry the authority of Jesus. And the powers of this world will have to bow down to him. Even though some of us might not have experienced this, we know this is true because we have observed it. And just because we haven't observed it in real life doesn't mean the Lord cannot do it again. 
In the world, we recognize and respect authority, but for some reason, authority within the church is often overlooked and trodden down and discouraged. Is it any wonder why authority is lacking among us so many times in Christendom? Luke chapter 10, verse 17. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as a lightning fall from heaven. Verse 19, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall be by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not, but that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Proper fate is realizing we have total power over the enemy. Neither that, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creatures shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, through his authority, through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's so important, brethren, for us to understand it's through him we have that power. Romans eight thirty-eight through 39. The only hindrance is our fate. We will not realize this fate until we are first under the authority of God and the authority and obedience of the church. Practically speaking, being under the authority of God is referencing God and following the word of God and his commandments. In the same way, being under the authority of church practically means that we are not only in good standing with the church, but we uphold the church in spirit and in truth. We stand with the leadership. We pray for them. We are obedient to the standards and doctrines that together we have agreed on, and we follow after them. It's this simple. Hebrews thirteen seven. Remember them. Remember them. This is plural. It's not only one person. It's not God that it's speaking about here. It's them. It's the leadership. Remember them which have a rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. This is a truth. This is a, a level of command, a level of authority that needs to be in place in our lives, in our Christian life, in order for us to have an overcoming life. What about the children? They follow a chain of authority that is extremely important to themselves and to their family and to the church. They are under the authority of their parents until they have come of age of accountability, where they will decide. And even after they have come under the authority of God, if that commandment isn't in Scripture, if they're not going against God, they ought to respect their parents' wishes. In all things. The sons of Korah did not follow after their father, but turned against their father and followed Moses. It was commendable for them to do that because they followed after God. To them is given one commandment to honor their father and mother, Ephesians 6.1. Follow their father and mother to be obedient to their parents. 
children, you have to be obedient to your parents. Children are to obey their parents without malice, without bitterness, or half-heartedness. We must teach our children obedience from the time they are born. It doesn't come naturally, as you all know. It must be trained, and training also involves a lot of correction. Brethren, the responsibility comes back to the parents. Children, you have to obey. A child doesn't obey their parents is not promised a long life, nor a smooth journey, but a tumultuous one. Parents, if we allow disobedience in our home, we are teaching them to disobey God. And as you all know, I'm speaking to myself as well. I've got a pretty big crowd at home. If we allow disobedience in our home, we are teaching them to disobey God. Until children are mature, we parents are their pictures of God to them, so to speak. If they love and respect us, they will love and respect God. And so it is for the opposite. It is the same for, for the church. If they disrespect and disobey God, they are of no use to the church. Parents, the home is a holy training ground for our children and needs to be kept reverently serious. They can fail in math and language arts, but they cannot fail in obedience. The latter is way more important. Parents practicing no to your children. They must not get their way all the time. They must hear definite no's, not maybes, not ibeshaun. They must hear a no. They must not have a bad attitude if they don't get their way, but should learn to bear disappointment gracefully and go the way of their parents. That is very important. Now, I don't mean say no just because of it, but because they tell us many things or they ask us many things that we know in our hearts that is a definite no, but because we're, we're scared of them or we don't want to disappoint them, we want to curve a little bit of that rough edge. We don't like to say no. What happens if we have to say no when they're teenagers? Then all hell breaks loose, just about, so to speak. And they have a temper tantrum. They don't speak to us for two days because they're mad at mom or dad because they wouldn't let them do this or that. It's not fair. The other children are doing it too. That's pretty classic. We have to learn to say no. And the children have to learn to accept it gracefully. They must not have a bad attitude if they don't get their way, but to learn to bear disappointment. We are increasingly at an age that when children don't get their way, they sulk, they pout, they have tempers, or worse yet, they just turn around and do what they wanted to in the first place, in secret and even in open openness, totally in defiance to their parents. Is it even a small chance that they are any different to their teachers and church leadership? I think not. It's easy to spot families that respect God church, and leadership. Just look at their children. 
And this might sound harsh, but it's an important truth. Just look at their children. If the parents honor God in the church, the children are generally on board, with very few exceptions. Most of us have observed the sobering reality of folks that have a hard time plugging into a godly church. The children will, be, will struggle with that even harder. My race isn't over with my children, but this is exactly the work that I have cut out for me. And all of us have. In closing, I want to repeat these New Testament principles. Number one, you have authority if you submit to authority. It's very dangerous for God to give authority in the hands of man who have never learned submission of authority. We cannot be leaders in the church, elders, or even fathers if we have not learned to submit to authority. God will never be able to use them if they have not learned this fundamental truth. Jesus learned obedience from his earthly and heavenly father for 30 years. How much more do we need to learn and to submit to the brethren, to the church, people around us? In particular, brothers in the church. Two, strive, division, and confusion follows the church of leaders that have not learned to submit to authority. Strive, division, and confusion follows the church of leaders that have not learned to submit to authority. The same is true to a young man and a woman who want to start a family. They must learn to submit to authority be before they can truly teach their children to follow after their own authority. The children pick up on this so fast and parents inevitably lose them in their teen years if this truth doesn't hit home for the parents. Lastly, Jesus was astonished at this man's fate. I am not worthy, but I am under authority. True faith and overcoming life comes by true reference to God. True faith comes by being under authority to God and the church leaders and brothers. God is not mocked. There is a chain of command in the spiritual world. The enemy knows it. Repent of your haughtiness and independent self-righteousness and turn fully to God. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these truths this morning. And I know it sounds harsh at times, but we believe you, Lord. We believe your word. Father, we pray for this cloak of authority that you can put over us as we are obedient to you. Father, we pray for a reference for you to just say majesty in your presence, to bow down to you so that we may have overcoming lives. For this we pray that you would press these truths onto our lives today and always. In Jesus' name, amen.